Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with Derek Davison, and we're just going to jump right into it because there is so much news. So, Derek, why don't we start with the um, deal, the nuclear deal with Iran and developments and updates and what has been going on there? Uh, sure. I think we should uh, also tell everybody this, is, this podcast is now officially a quarantine zone uh, <laughs> because we both have COVID. No, uh, I, I have not been. I well, have not tested okay. positive for COVID. I have COVID. You <laughs> may has. probably have COVID. Um, <laughs> I've tested so, negative for COVID. <laughs> uh, you know, don't come within six feet of this podcast if you can help it. Uh, so yes, uh, let's start with with Iran. Just a brief update, really. I mean, everybody knows that these negotiations on trying to revive the 2015 nuclear deal have been going on for quite some time. The Biden administration. Um, has refused to take yes for an answer from the Iranians while blaming the Iranians for adding extraneous uh, conditions and details onto the onto the process. Uh, there was a, a new round of talks, indirect talks between the U.S. and Iran held in Doha uh, last week that went apparently went nowhere and went nowhere so hard that they actually... Uh, there's some thought that they may have set the process back a bit. The ball is in U.S. court. If the U.S. acts realistically and shows its serious intention to implement its obligations, the agreement is not out of reach. Nobody want, nobody likes to talk in detail, and any detail you get is you know coming from the U.S. For the most part, you get bits and pieces uh, out of Iran. But uh, the, the story from the Biden administration is that the Iranians are, con are continuing to ask for things that they consider to be, uh, that the U.S. considers to be extraneous to the nuclear deal. I would imagine that has mostly to do with uh, the status of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its foreign terrorism uh, designation, which is, in my opinion, not extraneous to the nuclear deal since it was imposed by that. That was a condition or a uh, a penalty that was imposed by the Trump administration after it withdrew from the deal and in order to make it more difficult for Iran to get uh, the benefits of sanctions relief. So I don't view that as extraneous to the deal, but the Biden administration does. The Iranians uh, reportedly, um, you know, sound like they are back really and this this would be a, a kind of retrograde step it sounds like they're back to a, a demanding some kind of guarantee uh, from the united states that it would not repeat uh, the trump administration's actions of 2018 and withdraw from the deal in the future which seems perfectly reasonable from their perspective but it is something because of our wonderful political system here in the u.s uh that the biden administration can't the guarantee best. in order to do that it would have to uh, treat the nuclear deal as a treaty, which would never get past the Senate. Uh, and so it's instead something that's subject to the, the whims of whichever presidential administration uh, comes into office. Even if it was a treaty, it could be um, there are always loopholes to, to back out. Um, so that's that's where things stand. And if that's true, if that's where the Iranians are, that's where they were like six months ago. And there had been uh, all kinds of reporting saying they had moved a bit off of that position. So they may be going in the, the opposite direction here. Who knows? Well, good news as always. Um, why don't we turn now a bit to Africa? And there have been several coups that have recently occurred. Well, I mean, the coups you know have, that have occurred over the the last couple of years, most of them 
in West Africa. And so there was a big uh, meeting over the weekend of the economic community of West African states uh, leaders where they announced or, or talked about uh, developments with respect to their treatment of the juntas in Mali, Burkina Faso and Guinea. The meeting has taken on a sense of urgency as the number of violent attacks by armed groups across the region continues to rise. Mali in particular has been a, a, a thorny issue. Uh, there were two coups really. One, uh, the most recent one last year, kind of uh, set, uh, set the transition uh, onto a uh, democratic transition onto a different track where the junta was talking about um, maybe holding elections in 2025 or 2026, uh, which uh, ECOWAS regarded as a far too long a timetable, and they imposed uh, fairly punishing sanctions in January against the, the junta and really against Mali itself uh, over that that timetable. Last month, the junta announced what seemed to be a concession uh, where they uh, pledged, uh, they, they talked about a new timetable uh, that would have a, a general national election scheduled for March 2024. Uh, ECOWAS didn't immediately respond positively to that, but it seems like they have now because over the weekend, uh, they lifted, the bloc lifted its sanctions uh, against Mali. So presumably, uh, that March 2024 thing is now acceptable, and that's the the time frame where uh, they're going to be on. In addition, uh, the bloc discussed situ the situations in uh, Burkina Faso and Guinea. Uh, Burkina Faso's military junta has also pledged a 24-month transition, which seems to be the sweet spot as far as ECOWAS leaders are concerned. Uh, so it doesn't seem like there's going to be any sanctions involved there. Uh, the junta in Guinea, however, is uh, on a 36-month transition and has been threatened already by ECOWAS that uh, it will or could at least face sanctions by the end of this month uh, if there's no proposal for a shorter timetable. There's also news in Sudan uh, of note, which is another country that's uh, currently under a military government. Uh, the leader of that junta, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, uh, announced on Monday uh, that the Sudanese military is sort of standing back uh, from any negotiations over democratic transition. Uh, basically, what this means is he's he's uh, trying to put the onus, I think, on uh, civilian opposition groups that have been leading protests and, you know, kind of uh, calling for an end to military governance to form a new interim government that would manage the the transition process. Um, the catch here, there, there, there's got to be a catch, of course, uh, is that what Burhan has proposed is to dissolve the Junta's sovereign council, which is a sort of mixed civilian military council that's uh, exerting executive function in Sudan right now, or executive governance in, in Sudan, uh, and replace it with something called the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces that would just uh, cover things like security, defense, uh, presumably internal security as well. Uh, the thing is, there's no indication that Burhan is prepared to uh, have this Supreme Council of the Armed Forces actually take orders from the civilian transitional government. So basically, this is just kind of shuffling uh, the decks a little bit, and the military would still ultimately have uh, most of the cards here. And I think that's uh, been the the analysis of of these civilian the civilian groups, especially the the main one is the force called the Forces for Freedom and Change. Uh, they've kind of rejected this offer. They're saying it's it's uh, insufficient or it's a trap, uh, even so. 
um, you know, potentially a development there, but but probably not. I think the way it's been couched is uh, not terribly promising. So why don't we move over to Latin America and talk about the Chilean constitutional campaign? Yeah, I just wanted to, this is a, a brief one because it's, you know, it's just getting started, but the campaign ahead of the uh, referendum later this year on the ch- new proposed Chilean constitution uh, began this week. It began on Wednesday. In fact, the, the Constitutional Assembly presented Gabriel Boric with the, the new document and, you know, the campaign sort of kicked off. Polling, um, I, I, sh- I should say, indicates that a plurality, at least, if not an outright majority of Chileans uh, are not terribly thrilled with this document. At least they're not terribly thrilled with what they know about it or what's been reported about the process under which it was drawn up uh, and plan to vote against it. Those who feel the most left out are conservatives who represent the private sector, which feels threatened by the shift away from Chile's staunch free market model. Uh, There's a long way to go. Uh, before the referendum and the main campaign has, as I said, just begun. Uh, so that could change. Uh, but if, if it is voted, uh, down, then technically that leaves Chile's Pinochet era constitution still, uh, operative. Most people, I think the vast majority of Chileans uh, oppose that, you know, back in 2020, like something like 79 point nine percent or it was very close to 80 percent of the the country voted to scrap that constitution and draw up a new one they're just not happy with uh, apparently with what they know about the results of that process so i think most chileans would support kind of going back to the drawing board and doing it over again uh the question is whether um you know there's any way to kind of draft a document like this that would satisfy enough people to get majority support in a referendum. So just, you know, things are just starting. A lot of, lot of uh, ground has to be covered before, um, before you get to a, to a result. You think we're going to see a constitutional campaign in the U.S., Derek? <laughs> no. I, I, you know, you can't even, like, get decent coverage of the one that's happening in Chile. I saw the Washington <laughs> Post refer to this constitution as woke uh, a word that has no meaning whatsoever <laughs> has lost absolutely any sense of uh, what the fuck you could possibly be talking about. But their justification for this was like, uh, you know, it includes segments on environmental protection and indigenous rights and women's rights, all like oh, kind of totally. dismissed oh, as, woke. as wokeism. How, treating yeah, other people as people. And this is the Washington the Post. Yeah. I mean, this isn't like the, you know, the right wing nut daily. Up yours, woke moralists. We'll see who cancels who. This is the Washington Post doing this. It's just uh, insane. Uh, so no, I, I don't think the prospects for a uh, any political change in the United States are looking very good. Speaking of coverage, why don't we turn to Ukraine? Because I've noticed that uh, that war has been covered a lot less these days uh, than it was at the beginning. Is, is there a reason for that? What has been going on? Well, I was on vacation. I mean, you know, you can give me a break. For, uh, and then I <laughs> you will COVID. get no breaks. You yeah. will get zero breaks. Um, well, I think there's a couple of things going on. I mean, there's a, there's obviously some fatigue in terms of people's attention span, which is, you know, nat like uh, in the days of uh, devices and social media. But there's media also critique from Derek Davison. <laughs> there's also less going on. I mean, the, the, the shrinking of the the war theater, the you know shrinking of Russia's immediate war aims and, and the, the tactics that the Russian military has shifted to make for not terribly exciting news coverage because it's it's 
slow grinding, you know, artillery, uh, pounding one city at a time. There's not, you know, there's not a lot of variety here. It's hard to get information out of this region because it is uh, so intensely, you know, the, the conflict is going so intensely uh, in this one, you know, kind of isolated spot. So um, I, I think there's less, I mean, people's attention is, is waning, but also there's uh, maybe less to, to talk about. Uh, now, since we haven't talked about it in, uh, you know, a couple of weeks here, there are some things we can say, uh, for one, the biggest, I guess, is that the Russian military has completed its capture of Luhansk Oblast, uh, Ukraine's Luhansk Oblast. Over the weekend, the Ukrainian forces that were remaining in the city of Lysychansk, which was the last, you know, sort of holdout city in, in that province, uh, they withdrew to avoid being encircled by the Russians. Uh, so that brings you know, that, you know, they sort of declared a minor victory or milestone kind of a- along the way, um, uh, the Russians did, I should say, uh, the control of Luhansk gives them, you know, gets them halfway to the control, full control of the Donbass. There's also Donetsk province, uh, or Donetsk Oblast, which they, they are now focusing on the Russians control most of the Southern parts of Donetsk, but the northern parts remain in, in Ukrainian hands. Um, the next cities on the agenda, then the next cities to get treat, treated like uh, Lysychansk or Severodonetsk uh, were being treated over the last several weeks, uh, are places like Slovyansk, uh, Kramatorsk, Bakhmut, uh, and they all seem to be uh, taking a, a more, you know, escalating, increasing uh, Russian bombardment. There have been calls for uh, civilians to flee those cities, uh, get out of the way, which would both, uh, you know, take them out of harm's way and uh, maybe loosen the Ukrainian military up in terms of what it's able to do. Uh, so that's the main development is the the capture of, of Luhansk and the kind of refocusing on Donetsk. Um, there's some indication that the Russians may be pausing a bit they're 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 using artillery a lot to kind of soften these cities up but i haven't over the last couple of days seen any indication of a territorial advance uh so they may be kind of taking a little bit of a operational pause to regroup and and uh, before they get things going again uh but that's hard to say what does this suggest about the war's general direction I mean, as it's been for several weeks, I think the Russians are making progress. They are advancing through these, this part of the country that they, you know, announced weeks and weeks ago that that was going to be the focus of their war effort. Um, they have identified ways to use their advantages in uh, manpower and material to overwhelm the Ukrainian military in isolated locales. And that seems to be working for them. Uh, it's doing tremendous amount of damage by all accounts, physically and in terms of uh, of casualties, although hard numbers on casualties are hard to come by. There was one development that went uh, in Ukraine's direction. Uh, the Russian military withdrew last week from Snake Island in the Black Sea. Uh, you may remember Snake Island from like the, the day the invasion was launched. There was this like you know, big rallying cry because the Russian Navy kind of sailed up to the island and, and demanded surrender. And the Ukrainians on the island told them to go fuck themselves or something like that. Uh, and this was a big rallying cry. It turned out later that they had not done that and were actually captured and taken to Russia. Uh, but 
uh, regardless, it was sort of uh, the, the island gained some fame or re- relative fame for a, an otherwise unpopulated little uh, little spot of land in the Black Sea. Uh, the Russian military had been using Snake Island almost as a flagship, like a stationary flagship for their Black Sea naval operations as a command center and a, a place to station kind of air defense systems and things of that nature. But now they, they've withdrawn from it. They claim they, they did so in sort of a good faith gesture. I don't believe that. That um, what's probably happened is that some of this kind of longer range Western artillery is finally making its way into uh, combat and and allowed the Ukrainians to uh, you know better you know have a have a better chance of pounding the Russian positions on this island, which again is stationary. It's an island. Uh, there's not much place you can go to hide or or kind of evade. Uh, being bombarded like this. And so I think it just became untenable uh, for the Russians to hold on to it. They, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, not a major development, but not a, not a totally minor one either. Hey, listeners, it's producer Jake. Just a quick reminder to check out our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. It's where you can sign up to be on the free email list or the paid one. And if you're interested in our bonus content, we're now offering a free two-week trial where you can dig through the entire archive and obviously get the new episodes that we're putting out. So, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Thanks. So why don't we now turn, or rather stay, in Europe and uh, speak about Finland, Sweden, and NATO? Yes. So Turkey, Sweden, and Finland, the leaders of Turkey, Sweden, and Finland, reached an agreement uh, earlier this week under which the Turks agreed to drop their hold on uh, Finland and Sweden's uh, NATO applications. Now, if this deal is formalized, it would dramatically expand NATO's border with Russia by more than 1,300 kilometers in Finland, which is seen as a huge opportunity for NATO. The agreement was talked about in very vague terms, and there are somewhat differing interpretations of what was actually agreed to, which doesn't bode well for uh, the, the, the actual accession process. Finland and Sweden apparently promised that they would support Turkey in, in you know, areas related to national security, which is sort of de rigueur for NATO membership, and that they would not provide support to groups that the Turks regard as terrorist organizations, so primarily Kurdish groups, uh, maybe potentially also the Gulen, the dreaded Gulen organization, which is, you know, always a, a threat in some unspecified way. So those are sort of the vague kind of, you know, things where where this seems like no specificity about exactly what Finland and Sweden would, had agreed to do. Uh, Turkish President Erdogan, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, um, cl- is claiming uh, that Sweden in particular agreed to extradite dozens of designated terrorists uh, to Turkey, but there doesn't seem to be anything in the written agreement specifying any sort of number of extraditions or even that Sweden will uh, carry out any extradition. So uh, there's some gray area there. And I'll, I'll, as I'll get to in a moment, that could, that could wind up coming back, uh, back around. The other thing that emerged from this is like the following day, um, you know, the day after this agreement was announced, the Biden administration declared that it, it's sort of unconditional support uh, for uh, the sale of new F-16s and kits for modernizing Turkey's existing F-16 fleet, uh, all to Ankara. This sale had been stalled out. Uh, there was no indication the Biden administration was particularly supportive of it until after this agreement uh, was drawn up. So I, I suspect there was a, a quid pro quo there as well. 
what happens now, uh, I think on, on Monday, uh, it may have been the, uh, leaders of Finland and Sweden signed off or, or NATO and, and the leaders kind of signed uh, the official document that moved their membership candidates to the accession stage. Uh, this is not the membership stage. They don't get, uh, they get some perks of NATO membership at this point, but not, uh, not the big ones. Um, and then the process continues from there and in, you know, for, for them to be admitted to NATO fully as members, all 30 current members have to ratify the accession in their respective national legislatures. Uh, this is a process that could take a year, could take more. There's some urgency uh, because of the, the situation in Ukraine. So you might expect to see a little bit of a fast-tracked process here. But on the other hand, uh, for the Turks, there's really no advantage to fast-tracking this process because I think Erdogan would like to see that, uh, he, or wants to feel that he's being taken seriously. So he wants to see uh, you know, actual changes in policy from uh, the Finns and the Swedes before he's going to be willing to uh, to put this to a vote in the, the Turkish parliament. Uh, so Turkey still basically wields a veto over this. They could still block Finland and Sweden from from full NATO membership, but they have agreed to allow them to proceed to the next stage. Uh, that's why I say this extradition thing could could come up again, because if Erdogan thinks there are extraditions in the cards and, and none happen in the next, let's say, six months or so, uh, that could that could become a new sticking point in terms of, uh, you know, making progress. So why don't we turn to our final topic, and that's the resignation of friend of the pod, Boris Johnson, from the prime ministership of the United Kingdom. Truly a, a sad day. Um, really, I mean, I think we should have a, almost a moment of silence, but I won't impose that on anybody. Uh, Boris Johnson has resigned. Um, uh, I saw a friend of the show, uh, Patrick Wyman, uh, point out on Twitter that uh, this is a man who reached new frontiers in, I'm quoting him now in his tweet, in the age-old art of being an oaf. Uh, and I think that's correct. That's absolutely the way to look at it. He is nobody has oafed, ever oafed as hard as this man. And uh, we should recognize uh, his achievements in that that area. Um, yeah. So this is, I mean, this is sort of a, a like critical mass type of thing because uh, you know, as people know, we've talked about uh, in in past news updates. Uh, Johnson has been in trouble for just an array of scandals. Uh, you know, at this point, I don't know, 5,000 of them or something. It's been ridiculous. You know, more or less small scandals. I mean, you know, he, he broke COVID protocol repeatedly over the, over like, I think 2020, uh, holding these kind of wine and, and, you know, booze parties at uh, 10 Downing Street. Um, you know, and has been getting in trouble. He's been fined by the police. He was, uh, uh, you know, there've been these allegations of, kind of petty corruption, uh, not even necessarily from his time as prime minister. Some of them go back to when he was uh, mayor of London. But it's just been this sort of rolling boil of, of uh, little things piling up on one another. The latest uh, involves, and this is, this is fascinating, involves a man named Chris Pincher, uh, who is was uh, an MP from the Conservative Party. Uh, Johnson appointed him as, I think, uh, deputy chief whip in parliament uh and then it came out that that chris pincher 
it likes to grope people. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a, a strange name for a guy who likes to grope people. Um, he's been accused of groping a number of people uh, over a period of several years, um, which, okay, I mean, that's a scandal, but it's a scandal that, that deals with this Chris Pincher character. Then it came out that Johnson, uh, who had been insisting he had no idea that, that Chris Pincher was a, a sexual predator of any type. Uh, it turns out that he did actually know and, in fact, referred to him uh, allegedly as uh, Pincher by name, Pincher by nature. Just, just, just mind-blowing stuff here. So the revelation that Johnson apparently knew about this, this history as a, a sex pest or a predator uh, before appointing Pincher to his position basically became the final straw, so to speak. It's been a fascinating couple of days. Between Tuesday and Wednesday, I think over 40 members of Johnson's government, senior from everything from senior cabinet officials to sort of junior people, uh, had resigned the largest number of resignations from a British government ever in a single day. There was a one point Sky News, I think, was showing Johnson speaking in Parliament and they had a little ticker in the corner of the screen, the number of people uh, who had resigned from his government. And it kept going up as he the longer he spoke, it kept going up. So uh, all these people kind of storm, you know, kind of streamed out of the government. Many of them uh, did so while demanding his resignation. Johnson held out through Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, insisted that he was not going to resign. Um, then, uh, you know, by Thursday, uh, even the people he had appointed to replace the people who just resigned the previous day were demanding that he resign. Uh, I think at least a couple of people who had only been on the job a couple of days were resigning already. Uh, so the thing just became comically, you know, too much to, 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 uh, I think resist. Uh, there was some, movement by uh, backbench conservatives to arrange another confidence vote, another interparty interparty confidence vote uh, that probably would have ousted him uh, as leader anyway. Uh, and so he finally, I think, saw the writing on the wall and, and uh, announced on Thursday that he was resigning. Now, there's a catch. The catch is uh, that Johnson wants to remain in office until his successor is picked. He would do so in sort of a caretaker way, you know, while surrendering sort of any ability to kind of propose major legislation or do any, any, make any big moves. There is no procedure for selecting a, a replacement caretaker prime minister. So there's no, there's no obvious path out of this other than to sort of let Johnson uh, stay in office, which means, you know, he's going to be there during the wrangling and the campaigning, uh, you know, with all these uh, other Tory twits to, to try to replace him, uh, which could take months. It could mean he's still in office in, you know, uh, in the fall or even beyond, depending on how long that campaign takes. So we'll see. Again, the party could choose a, a new leader fairly quickly and replace him uh, or could choose like a caretaker leader, but it's unclear how it would do that or why you would vote on like a temporary caretaker leader and not just a full replacement and why, you know, uh, why insert that extra step. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, it's still unclear when exactly Johnson is going to go, even though he's announced his resignation. I did see one bit of speculation that Johnson wants to hold on until later this month because he's scheduled his hitherto postponed kind of wedding reception for later this month at the official kind of 
country house of the PM at Checkers. Uh, and he just wants to hang on to office long enough to have that party. I, mean, I, I don't can know. empathize with that. That makes a lot <laughs> I can of sense. too. I mean, you don't want to have to pay rental for a party place, you know, come on. Uh, that, that would be astronomical. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a lot of silliness and, and uh, the usual British kind of nonsense. But uh, Johnson seems to be going at some point. So pour one out. Well, Derek, on that note, God save the queen. And it's God good to save be back. The queen. See you all next uh, next interview. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.